Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. We have a lot of ground to cover tonight. If everything goes according to plan, we will finish the book of Amos tonight. You can turn to Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8 and 9 is the last of the visions that God gives to Amos. And then the very end of chapter 9 is actually God saying again that even though he's going to punish Israel... He's going to restore them. The faithfulness of God is yet again declared at the end of Amos. And the point of this, even though it kind of got drawn out over the course of months because the event interrupted things, but I I planned to get through this fairly quickly just so that you'd get an overview of the book and have a sense that yet again, the prophets of God, this is the phrase I keep using, The prophets of God all speak with one voice. They all say the same thing. There's terrible, terrible news. Israel has rebelled. God is going to punish them. God's going to bring the Assyrians down on them. God is angry at them for the way that they've treated the poor and the downtrodden. He's going to get into that tonight and talk about the ways that they have used people as products, as chattel, the way that they've dealt with uneven scales, the way that they've cheated people, and the way that they've abused the poor. And so God is angry at them yet again. But then he's going to bring up their idol worship yet again. He's going to mention Dan and Bethel yet again. These are things that God is real, real upset about. And so he's going to drive them out of their land. But by the time you get to the end of chapter 9, God says, but I won't destroy them all. And then he starts making promises. And then he says he's going to restore them and bring them back to this land. And they're going to stay in this land and they're going to have plenty and they're going to be fine. And and then at the very end of Amos, he even says that even the Gentile nations are going to be blessed because Israel's going to be blessed. And this is a real important theological concept that I think not enough people appreciate or understand. The people who say, well, God is done with Israel, or Israel's become the church, or anything of that sort, aren't following what the Bible says about how God is planning to bless Gentile nations. Because the plan is to bless Israel, and through Israel, for those blessings to flow to all the Gentiles. But it's the Jew first. Which is why Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. In fact, many years ago, when I was in Texas teaching on eschatology, David Morris was teaching during the day on this very subject. And talking about how people have replaced Israel to their own detriment. And when you read what Paul wrote in Romans 11... Don't brag if you're the the cut-off branches who have been grafted in contrary to nature. Don't brag against the natural branches. Because if God can graft you in and you're unnatural, he can certainly graft the natural back in. 
And so don't start boasting against those branches. And there's an awful lot of theological boasting going on. And everybody seems to think that once God got to the 21st century church of Gentiles, that he said, oh, finally, what I've been working on for a long time has now been accomplished. But the reality is, and we'll see it again, that God has promised Israel he's going to bless them, and then through Israel, the Gentile nations. And that also brings up something real interesting, again, from a theological standpoint. It brings up the question, well, what about that? The, the Gentiles don't have the law, and they don't have the prophets, and they don't have the promises, and they don't have the covenants, and yet there's this promise that they'll be blessed through Israel. And so tonight, if we can get done on time, we're also going to go over to the book of Acts and look at how James quotes directly from the last chapter of Amos in order to say that Gentiles are going to be saved and the prophets have already predicted that the Gentiles are going to be saved and they're going to be saved without the law. They don't have to keep the law because Amos has already said it. And then he quotes Amos. So we're going to look at all of that and the ripple effect, the ramifications of that in the New Testament, and then I think we'll have our theology pretty much together on that subject. Okay, so it starts with chapter 8, which is just bad news, bad news, bad news. This is the last of the visions that God gives to Amos in order for Amos to tell Israel, God is angry at you. He's going to punish you. Chapter 8, verse 1. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. What you have to understand about the phrase summer fruit is that that means ripe fruit. This is fruit that's falling off the vine. This is fruit that's really only going to be good for a very short period of time. It has over-ripened to the point where you better use it now or it's over with. And in the Hebrew language, the actual lettering for ripe fruit and time of end or time of harvest, what God's going to call the judgment, is really, really similar. So in the Hebrew here, there's actually a little wordplay going on. Because the Lord showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. And he said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And then the Lord said to me, the end has come. So he used the basket of ripe fruit as a visual aid in order to say that's what Israel's like. They're like overripe fruit who are due for picking, who are due for harvest. They're due for destruction, as it turns out. A basket of summer fruit, and then the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will not spare them any longer. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. Many will be the corpses. In every place, they will cast them forth in silence. There's going to be so many dead people that there's not enough people to to handle all of the dead bodies. And they're going to be throwing them out, casting them out. There's so many dead people. And so verse 4 says, hear this. You who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain? And when will the Sabbath be over that we may open the wheat market? In other words, 
This is God's directive to keep the new moons and to keep the Sabbaths as a way of worshiping God, as a way of understanding that Yahweh is in their midst. And it's supposed to be a time of worship. It's supposed to be a time of joy and a time of praise because God has established and is keeping Israel. And so they're recognizing that in their three annual feasts, their new moons and their Sabbaths. And he said, here, those people who are busy selling, busy making money, those people who have turned other people into merchandise can't wait for those things to be over. Can't wait for the, that Sabbath thing and that new moon thing. Just get it over so I can open my market again. And so they have prioritized selling things over the worship of God. Hear this, you who trample the needy to do away with the humble of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may open our wheat market to make the bushel smaller? In other words, they're cheating what a bushel ought to be and make the shekel bigger so that we can sell less for more. And if, if we do that, then we don't have to worry about the God thing. We're just enriching ourselves on the back of those people who ought to be our brethren. And to cheat with dishonest scales. They used to use a scale to weigh out the money. And so they would set their scales in such a way that you had to pay a little extra, a little more for what you used to be able to buy. You say, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be over that we may open the wheat market to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger and to cheat with dishonest scales so as to buy the helpless for money and to buy the needy for a pair of sandals and that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. What that means is they were supposed to be selling good grains but when they would sift the wheat, they would keep all of the refuse and they would sell that in place of the wheat, mix it in with the good wheat, and that way they could increase their profits by selling bad products, inferior products for more money. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed, I will never forget any of their deeds. Because of this, will not the land quake? And everyone who dwells in it mourn. Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile in Egypt. What God's doing there is saying the land, which seems so stable, is going to be like the rivers of the water in its instability, in the way that it rises and falls. And so the land is going to quake and the land is going to rise and the land is going to fall. It's very frightening language that God is in charge of making sure that the land quakes, shakes, rises, falls, scares everybody. And it will come about, verse 9, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I shall make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. We've seen several examples of God's ability to do this, whether he does it by eclipse We've even seen him stop the sun in the sky. We've also seen the three days of darkness that happened in Egypt. We've seen the three hours of darkness that happened when Jesus was on Golgotha. We know that God is in charge of the lights that are in the sky. And he has said, I'll even withhold that 
so that when the earth quakes, it's extra, extra scary. Now there's no sun. This is not good. Then I shall turn your feasts, your festivals, into mourning, and I will turn all your songs into lamentations, and I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins. In other words, everyone will be wearing sackcloth as a sign of repentance before God. And boldness on every head. I don't want to hear a single comment about that. I see you. I, I know what you're thinking. I'm just ahead of the curve. That's all. And I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on every head. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. So that's what it's going to be like. Emotionally, it'll be like your only child has died. And the end of it will be like a bitter day. Verse 11, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God. Now he's, he's transitioned. The first part of this chapter is talking about human agony, human fear, human dread over all the things that are happening. But the other thing that's going to happen, according to God, is that he himself is going to hold back his presence. So it's going to be a combination of times of terror and dread on people. And to make it worse, God won't be able to be found because he's going to hide himself. So he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, but not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. No more prophets, no more word of the Lord. And in fact, the people are going to be so desperate to hear from God they're going to start searching for somebody who knows the word of the Lord. That's verse 12. And the people will stagger from sea to sea. And from the north even to the east, they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. By the way, to and fro means one direction and the opposite. When he named north and east, if you go one direction and the opposite. That's north and south, east and west. You're going to go everywhere looking for the word of God and you will not find it. Why? Because God decided you weren't going to find it. God decided there would be a dearth of his word in the land. Does any of this sound familiar? We're coming up on days when it certainly seems like this is happening. There's a lot of substitutes for the word of God. There's a lot of theologies, gospels, and Christ that aren't found anywhere in the Bible that are being announced and pronounced. There's a lot of religion like Islam going around or Buddhism going around, but the actual word of God being told to people, being preached to people, doesn't seem to be happening that often anymore. And when it is, as Conrad said when he prayed, he said, I don't understand why only this group is here. People should be busting out the wall saying, just tell me the word of God. I need to know the word of God. And so God is going to bring about this famine, the famine of the hearing of the words of the Lord. People are going to stagger north and east to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they will not find it. Verse 13, and in that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. In other words, the young people virgins talks about young women who haven't been married yet. 
young men who are strong and full of vigor, people who have the energy to get up and and go seeking, and they're not going to find it. They're going to be thirsty for the word of God. And as for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, this entire prophecy is about Samaria. It's about the northern tribes. And who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives. Okay, where were those two golden calves that were up in Samaria? They were in Dan and Beersheba. And so people, not having the word of God, will run to their false gods. They'll run to their idols and expect an answer from them. And that's what people are still doing. People who don't know the word of God and can't find the word of God will run to something, to someone How many times have you heard me say people who cannot worship God will still worship something? They'll still worship someone. Well, that's the way it's always been. And they will run to Dan and run to Beersheba. As for those who swear by the guilt of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall and not rise again. And then chapter 9 begins with the fifth and final of these visions that are given to Amos. And if you think it got bad so far, it now gets really bad. And God says, when I dole out this punishment, there won't be anywhere to go. He even says, if you run to heaven, I'll find you because that's my home. If you run to hell, I'll find you. If you go in the deep, I'll send a serpent after you. If you go any place, I'll find you. So I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake. In other words, strike the the capitals. Those were the things on the tops of the pillars that were built in the tabernacle and such. And so he says, strike the temple, strike the, the altar that's sitting on it so that the whole Thresholds are going to shake and then break them on the heads of them all. So their temple, their places of worship are going to descend right down on them. And then I will slay the rest of them with the sword and they will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Everybody's going to get caught in this. And when the Assyrians came in, The deportation and the slaughter in the wars was a complete end of Israel. So much so that other people groups came in and and took that land over and squatted on that land because there were no more Israelites who could claim the land. They were all taken off or killed in this captivity. So there won't be a refugee who will escape. Then look at verse 2. Though they dig into Sheol... This is one of those uh, hyperboles that you find occasionally in the Bible. This is God saying, if you could dig to China, and on your, did you ever do that? I tried to do that as a kid. I'm digging to China. If you could dig to the earth until you found Sheol, if you could hide so deep in the grave that you ended up in hell, this is what God says to you. Though they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. I'll take them back out. I'll go get them. Which, by the way, shows you that sovereign God has control even over the gates of hell. And even over the grave. He can bring people up from the grave. 
people who have died and gone onto the grave, no hindrance to God he's going to punish. Though they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them, and though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. So there's no escaping this. If you go up all the way to heaven, if you go down all the way to Sheol, God says, I will get you. Verse 3, and though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, if you go all the way to the bottom of the ocean, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. Which is God saying, I sovereignly am in control of fish and serpents, which we certainly found out in the Jonah story. God's in charge of the fish. I will even command a serpent so he'll come find you and come bite you. So God is really out to get them. There's no escape. That's really the whole point. If I could condense that section of Amos and just say, when the judgment of God is being poured out, there's no escape. If he is indeed sovereign, if he is indeed omnipotent, and if he is indeed omniscient and omnipresent, then he knows where everyone is. He's going to find you. Verse 4. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. And the Lord God of hosts, that's that sovereign name, the God who's in charge of everyone and everything, the Lord of hosts. And the sovereign God, the Lord of hosts, the one who touches the land and it melts. And all those who dwell in it mourn. And all of it rises up like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. The one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and has founded his vaulted dome over the earth. He who calls for the waters of the seas and pours them out on the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. This is what he says. Are you not like the sons of Ethiopia to me? Okay, now Israel at this point is so secure, so sure, that because they are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and because they have promises like the Davidic covenant and the Davidic promise, they're so confident that they're the chosen nation of God. One thing they're not like is those Ethiopians, those Gentiles, because those Gentiles don't have any of those things. They don't have the promises or the covenants. They don't have the prophets. They don't have the law. They don't have the word of God. One thing we're not is like the Ethiopians. And God shows up and says, aren't you like the Ethiopians to me? So he says, are you not as the sons of Ethiopia to me? O sons of Israel, declares the Lord. Have I not brought up Israel from the land of Egypt? And then, at the same time, so that they understand, yes, yes, we are the special people. You did bring us up from Egypt, and you sent Moses to us, so clearly we're your beloved people. We're the ones that you prefer. But then he talks about two Gentile nations and says, and didn't I bring up the Philistines from Kaftor, the ones who attacked you, and the Arameans from Kerr? Well, 
So now God is saying, the same way that I brought you up from Egypt and I'm in charge of where people groups go, I brought the Gentiles up that are going to take you into captivity. I brought the Gentiles up with which I'm going to punish you because I'm in charge of bringing people up. But he also equated these people in their sin, in their rebellion, in their unfairness. He equated them to these Gentile nations. And they would have thought, one thing we're not is like the Gentiles. And God said, you are. I can make you just like them. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, look at the end of verse 8. After all this bad news, we've been nine chapters of bad news. We've been continual bad news all through this book. God is out to get you, Israel. God is going to equate you to the Gentiles. God is going to punish you. God is going to make your land rise and fall. God's going to make it dark. God's going to make sure that there are no remnants left of you, that I'm just going to destroy you completely. And then he says, and nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Why? Don't they deserve it? Listen to how bad the punishment was. Listen to the visions that Amos has seen. Listen to what he has proclaimed against them. Aren't you going to wipe out Israel? And then he says, but I won't wipe them out completely because I've made promises. There's things I still have to do through Israel. Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, the unconditional covenant that I made with Abraham agrees that through the descendants of Abraham, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And if he wiped out Israel, if he wiped out Jacob completely, then he's wiped out everybody's blessing. So he's going to keep Israel around because, again, remember what I said at the beginning, the Gentile nations receive their blessings through Israel. And so, behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth nevertheless. I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I am commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations. As a grain is shaken in the sieve, but not a kernel will fall to the ground. Here's what that picture means. He said, I'm going to drive the Israelite nations into the Gentile nations. But there's a day coming. When the punishment is finished, when I'm going to take those nations, and it's like putting them in a sieve, kind of like Jesus talking to Peter and saying, Satan has desired to have you, that he could sift you like wheat. The same kind of picture. The way that you would separate wheat from chaff is that you would take the whole kernels and you would put them on the threshing floor on a sieve. And then you would beat it until the kernel of wheat, the real food, was separated from the chaff. And the chaff would fall through the grid, but the kernels would stay up there because they were larger, and so it was a very fine meshed grid that the junk would fall through. And so God said, I'm going to do exactly that with Israel. I'm going to go to the Gentile nations, and I'm going to sieve them out. Not an Israelite that I'm after. Not a kernel is going to fall to the ground. So as I shake them, as I sieve them out, I'm going to make sure that I get every kernel of them. The same way that God has said, I can find everybody to punish them. 
Everyone I am determined to punish. It doesn't matter if you go to heaven or hell or in the deep or on Mount Carmel or even if you go into the Gentile nations and hide among your enemies. I'm going to find you and I'm going to punish you. But then he says, because I have that ability to find you, the same Gentile nations that I've driven you into, I will then come find you there. I will sift you out there and not a kernel of you is going to fall to the ground. And all the sinners of my people will die by the sword. And those who say this calamity will not overtake us or confront us. Which was the common way of thinking. We're God's people. This calamity that Amos has talked about through this whole book. It might strike someone but it's not going to strike me. And so Amos tells them, warns them. That all the sinners of my people. Look at that phrase. All the sinners of my Israelites, all the sinners of my chosen nation are nevertheless going to die by the sword. It comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Say that again. Jesus is coming with a sword, two-edged sword in his mouth. It's Jesus who will yield the sword. I agree. I agree. And you said you're studying right now and memorizing the book of Revelation. When he comes with that two-edged sword out of his mouth, the blood's going to flow to the bridles of the horses in the Megiddo plain. It's still uh, an awful scene. And yet, the end of that is going to be the restoration of Israel. Look at the end of the chapter. This has been bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. Verse 11. In that day, what day? In the day that I punish Israel. Yeah, in the day of the wrath, in the day when I punish Israel, in that day I will raise up the fallen tabernacle or the fallen booth of David. Why? Because he made a promise to David. It's the Davidic covenant. He made a promise that there was always going to be a descendant of David sitting on David's throne ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that has to happen. Even though God is punishing Israel, nevertheless, because he has put his word out there and he's made a covenant with David, he's going to reestablish at some point the fallen tabernacle of David. In that day, I will raise up the fallen tabernacles of David and wall up its breaches. What that means is when people would attack a city or attack a citadel or a building, they would knock down the walls. God's saying, I'm going to rebuild their walls. Where those walls have been breached, I'm going to build up the walls again. And I will also raise up its ruins. Even though it's a, a ruination, I'm going to raise it up again. I'm going to establish it again. And look at this. I will rebuild it as in the days of old. At one time, Israel was chiefest among nations. During the time of David, during the time of Solomon, when the queen of Sheba came up and saw what Solomon had and all his horses and his great splendor and everything else, she said, I, I, people have told me about it, but I couldn't imagine it now that I've seen it. Well, at some point, God says, I'm going to do that again. I'm going to make Israel the chief nation on the planet again, and I'm going to reestablish particularly the tabernacle of David. That they may possess, this is very interesting now, that they, the tabernacle of David, the Israelites, that they may possess 
the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. So Edom becomes the figurehead for the Gentile nations. And then he says, and all those Gentile nations that are called by my name are going to be possessed by Israel. The blessings that God is going to pour out, he's going to pour out through Israel to the Gentile nations. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Verse 13, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman, the, the one who's plowing out the field, getting ready to plant, the plowman will overtake the reaper. In other words, they'll still be reaping the fields when they're replowing them. They're going to have so much food. They're going to have so much plenty that the plowman's going to catch up with the, the last reaping that's still being done. And the treader of grapes with him who sows the grapes, with him who sows the seed. There's going to be so much grapes for wine, and there's going to be so much plenty that the way that God describes it, the one who treads out the grapes is going to catch up with the one who's seeding the grapes. And then the mountains... The end of verse 13, the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Remember a moment ago, God said, I'm going to touch the land and it's going to melt. That's a figure probably of the fact that God can level ground. He can cause earthquakes and he can bring mountains down. He's the same God who created them in the first place. He can bring them back down. And so what once was a very bad thing and what once was a threat against Israel is now a promise to Israel that God's going to make their land a pleasant land and it's going to be dripping with sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Look at verse 14, and also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. Has that happened yet? I know I asked that question many times through this study, but, but that just hasn't happened yet. We can argue that the return of some Jewish people to the Middle East after the Second World War was a precursor of this idea, but we don't see all 12 tribes yet. We don't see the Gentile nations shaken yet. We don't see David's greater son sitting on David's throne yet. There's still stuff to do and it all has to do with Israel. They don't possess all the land yet either. And they don't possess all the land yet. All the land that was promised to Abraham hasn't come to fruition yet. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman will overtake the reaper, when the treader of grapes will take over him who sows the seed, when the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved, and also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities, and they will live in them. And they will also plant vineyards, and they will drink wine, and they will make gardens, and they will eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out of their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. That's the way that Amos ends. It ends with a promise that sitting here right now, we still haven't seen come to its fruition. Today, the news was, today, that there was a Palestinian gunman in Israel. And he killed several people and wounded several more. 
I read on the news today that the Palestinians were giving away treats and candy in the streets and celebrating in Yahoo for the killing that was going on in Israel. Which when I read stories like that, I think, well, that's what the Bible says they'll do. When they kill the final prophets of God, they're going to celebrate in the streets and give each other gifts and Yahoo, we've killed them. And as barbaric as that sounds, it's what's happening right now. And yet God has promised these people that they're going to live in peace and they're going to have their land and they're going to grow their gardens and then they're going to eat of their gardens. God has promised them that they are going to become the chief of the nations. Here, let's look at Jeremiah 33 for just a moment. No way. Hold on to Jeremiah 33. We'll close with that. Turn to Acts 15. Because as I promised you, in Acts 15, we get the New Testament interpretation of this. Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Turn there. This is the Jerusalem Council. I guess if we start at verse 1, I'm trying to get down to like verse 20, but I'll read quickly. And some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren and saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so you've got the Gentiles. The Gentiles are being saved. And you have the Judaizers. You have the law keepers who are coming in and saying, you have to be circumcised. You've got to follow the law, the custom of Moses, or you can't be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, yes, I can only imagine how great the debate and the dissension was if the book of Galatians is any kind of indication. So when Paul and Barnabas had this dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. What do we do about the Gentiles? The Gentiles are getting saved. The Holy Spirit is on the Gentiles. We're baptizing Gentiles into the faith. And there are some who say, that can't be. You have to become a Jewish lawkeeper first. Because these are our promises. These are our prophets. This is our Jewish Messiah. This belongs to us. Verse 3. So therefore, being sent on their way by the church... They were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And they were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But certain ones of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed... These stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. By the way, that's still being said to this very day. There are still people arguing about whether or not Christians should keep the law of Moses. If you're a Gentile believer, should you keep the law of Moses? How does the law of Moses fit into your larger theology? And They're still arguing about it despite the fact that the answer is right here. And the apostles, verse 6, and the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. You remember all that, right? Peter was sent to the house of Cornelius. And he preached to Cornelius' whole household. And he baptized them. And there were believers there. And so Peter could say, God has decided that by me, I should go to the Gentiles. And lo and behold, this is what's happened. They've been saved. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He gave us the Holy Spirit. Now he's giving it to them. And yet there are some who are saying, well, sure, they've got the Holy Spirit, and sure, they've been baptized, and they believe. But they still have to keep the law. <laughs> they still have to be circumcised. They still have to follow Moses, and, and I want to ask them, why? One time, I'll tell you this brief story. One time many years ago, and this is the reason that Mormons no longer come to my door. <laughs> but once upon a time, there was some an older Mormon and a younger Mormon who came to my door and I engaged them in conversation and I sat on the porch with them and we talked for a long time, probably an hour. And one of the questions that I asked them was, do you believe that the Bible is sufficient to save a person and get them to heaven? And of course, because their book is a, another testament of Jesus Christ, they end up having to say that the Bible is sufficient. If they say it's not, then they have an even bigger theological problem. So I said, do you think the Bible is sufficient to save me and get me to heaven? And they said, yes. And I said, then why do I need your book? I have a book that's enough. And the only answer they could think of, the older fellow said, well, it's um, more. <laughs> more what? You've just said I'm saved. You just said I've got heaven. You just said the Bible is sufficient. What? More do I need? Well, that's the essence of this argument. God has given these Gentiles the Holy Spirit. God has saved these Gentiles. Yes, but they need to keep the law. Why? Well, it's more. <laughs> well, it's, it's just something to do. But they weren't saved by the law. They weren't kept because they were following Moses. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit because they were circumcised. And if they've received the sufficient spirit of God, what more do they need? And so that's the argument here. Verse 8, And God who knows the heart bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did also to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith, not by the law, not by circumcision, but by believing. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's now talking about the law. The reason that Israel fell, the reason that Israel was cast out of their land, the reason that all of these things befell them is that they couldn't keep the law. And so that becomes a yoke of bondage that they can't keep. And so Peter's asking a very logical question. Why would you take a law that didn't even save you, which you couldn't even do, which acted as a yoke around your neck? Why would you insist on putting that on the Gentiles? That's not helping them. 
Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? That's an interesting phrase. That you're trying God by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the exact same way that they are. Since we couldn't do the law, since we failed to do the law, we're saved by the new covenant. We're saved by faith in the finished work of Christ. That's how we got saved. Why would we deny that benefit to them? And all the multitude kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders Paul had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, and he now quotes Amos. So he's picked up the end of the book of Amos and used it as his defense for why Gentiles should be saved by faith without the works of the law. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And how does James understand those words? How does he apply them? Verse 19, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those that preach him since he's being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and with Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, who were leading men of the brethren, and they sent this letter by them. This is what the letter said, the apostles and the brethren who are the elders to the brethren in Antioch, in Syria, and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having been of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. Notice he doesn't say, keep the law, follow after Moses, be circumcised. Here's the only rules, he says that you would abstain from things sacrificed to idols. Okay, that's a good rule. And that you would sustain from blood. Don't be eating and drinking blood. And from things that are strangled. 
and keep yourself from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you do well. Bye-bye. Farewell. That's it. That's the end of it. And James's entire argument was built on Amos. So Amos had a very profound effect on our New Testament, New Covenant theology. And the reason that we as Gentiles to this day aren't pretending that we're doing the law and aren't thinking that we're being saved by the things that we do, but that we're being saved by faith in the finished work of Christ and by the Holy Spirit of God inside us, sealing us until the day of our complete redemption and perfection. The reason that we believe that theology is because that's what it says in Amos. And that's what James drew from the book of Amos. You got all that? And so with that, we close the book of Amos in order to go look at Micah, which is going to say the same basic thing. And the reason that we're looking at these things is because we did bump into the minor prophets in our study of 2 Kings. And we said, let's go look at them. What did they say? And they all say the same thing. Do you want one more indication? Sure we do, Jim. Good. Turn to Jeremiah 33. That's where we were trying to close. Jeremiah 33. Back before your Daniel and your Ezekiel, you know that Daniel 31 is the promise of a new covenant. And then Jeremiah is imprisoned for that. Chapter 33. Oh dear, where do you start here? Start at verse 1. We'll read till we're finished. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the second time while he was still confined in the court of the guard, saying, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it. The Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are broken down to make a defense against the siege mounds and against the sword. While they are coming to fight with the Chaldeans and to fill them with the corpses of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my wrath, and I have hidden my face from this city because of all their wickedness. Behold, I will bring that city to health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. So the same people who God said, I'm going to destroy. Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom. He's talking about the cities of Jerusalem. He's talking about the areas of Judah and Benjamin. He's talking about the destruction in the Babylonian captivity. And yet God would promise, I haven't forgotten the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I'm going to restore them. Verse 8, and I will cleanse them from all their iniquity. So that was their problem. Their problem was they were sinful and they were iniquitous and they were rebellious. And God says, I'll forgive them. Which, by the way, ought to make you real happy. Because if I know anything about Micah, he's sinful and rebellious and iniquitous. I just picked you because you were there. But your, your wife agreed. And so... <laughs> And she shouldn't have nodded so vigorously, but <laughs> she, knows. she knows. But 
But we take great comfort in the fact that this is the kind of God who's in the Bible, the God who could say, your, your iniquity, your sinfulness, your rebellion is terrible, but I'll work it out. Because I've loved you with an everlasting love. That's Jeremiah 31.3. Because you're my people, because I've made covenants and promises with you, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity. Verse 8. By which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me, and by which they have transgressed against me. And it, that's Israel, shall be to me a name of joy and praise and glory before all the nations of the earth. So all those other Gentile nations. Jerusalem's going to be the place of my joy. Jerusalem's going to be the place of forgiveness. And then it flows to all the nations. Which shall hear of all the good that I do for Israel, and they shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I will make for it. Thus says the Lord, yet again there shall be heard in this place, of which you say it's a waste, it's without man and without beast, that is, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without a man and without inhabitant and without beast. Once again, you'll hear the voice of joy and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts for the Lord is good for his loving kindness is everlasting and of those who bring a thank offering into the house of the Lord. For I will restore the fortunes of this land as they were at the first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, there shall again be in this place, which is a waste, without man or beast. And in all its cities, it's a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks. And in the cities of the hill country, and in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the Negev, and in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flocks shall again pass under the hand of the one who numbers them. They're going to be so numerous in their flocks that as they pass under their hand and count the, the sheep, he's going to fill them again. Even though at the moment, it's desolate. At the moment... It's without people. It's without animals. He says, I'm going to make it great. When is he going to do all that? We keep waiting to see that come to its fruition. We keep waiting for the blessings to flow from Jerusalem. When's that going to happen? Verse 14. But behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Notice, by the way, I'm just going to say this. I'm just going to throw this out there. You cannot possibly fit the church in that. That's right. He's talking about the land, the cities. He's declared where they are, Jerusalem, the cities of Benjamin, the ones that are destroyed, the ones that are desolate, without man or beast. He's very clear about what he's talking about. And again, he says, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And those words mean something. And nowhere in the New Testament does anybody anywhere say the house of Israel and the house of Judah is now the church. It's simply not there. Nobody says it. And so 
if we're going to take the Bible seriously and take it at its word, then we have to agree with these words. Because in those days and at that time, says verse 15, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute judgment, justice, and righteousness on the earth. And in those days, Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called, shall be called, the Lord is our righteousness. No longer will they be out to establish their own righteousness by the law. No more will they be saying, well, our righteousness is in the things that we do. They'll say, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, verse 17, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to burn grain offerings and to prepare sacrifices continually. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that the day and the night will not be at their appointed times, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. And as the hosts of heaven cannot be counted, and as the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and, and the Levites who will minister to me. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord chose, that's the house of Israel and the house of Judah? Have you, haven't you heard the people? Haven't you heard them speak? They're saying, The two families which the Lord chose, he's rejected them. And thus they despise, he's talking about the Gentile nations, thus they despise my people. And no longer are they a nation in their sight. And thus says the Lord, if my covenant for the day and the night stand not, and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I will restore their fortunes, and I will have mercy on them. What more do you need to know? How much more evidence do you need that all the prophets speak with a single voice? All the prophets keep saying the same thing. And you would think that at some point, we Gentiles, who are going to be the beneficiaries of the blessings that come on Israel, you would think at some point we would just simply agree that this is what the Bible says. Because the church replacement theology and the, the idea that God has done away with Israel permanently and never going to restore them and never going to do the things he said he's going to do or that these things when they're spoken over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament don't really mean that you would think that people would just say you know what God's God and he can do whatever he wants to do and he's told us what he wants to do and he's going to do that so that is uh, Amos <laughs> and next time when we're together we'll teach some Micah stuff and we'll try very hard not to pick you out when we're talking about Micah
And after that, we're studying the book of April. So that'll be fun. <laughs> so that's, that's going to be really good. So you want to be here for that. Are there any questions? It's really that clear, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I said, are there any questions? People went, nope. Well, the way you read it. Well, the way you read it, yeah. <laughs> the way you see it over and over again. In Acts, where it talks about, for Moses is preached everywhere. Um, yeah. I've heard that used to justify um, the reason we don't have to lay any other rules on you is because you can go to your local synagogue and get the rest of it. Sure. People who are determined to get Gentiles under the law use that verse to say, but wait. But if you look at the larger context, and if you look at the the Amos, like we did tonight, that he's quoting from, the prophet that he's quoting from, it's very clear what his intention is. And the fact that he sent the letter and at the end of the letter said, I don't put anything else on you, just this, it's pretty clear that he is not advocating for the law of Moses. And the point, I think, of him saying, for there are people who preach Moses every Sabbath, is he's saying, for those people, Israelites, who want to hear some Moses, you can find that anywhere. You can hear Moses preached, but to the Gentiles, they don't need the, the Moses commands in order to establish their righteousness. They're already righteous by the very fact that God has given them the spirit. They have faith in Christ. Yeah? Yes. Good. Anything else? See, a minute ago, you had no questions. And then... All right, now, you never do mention that Dan is not, is not one of the Yes, from Dan to Beersheba. And because that's where the golden calf was and because that was a seat of foreign worship, idol worship and everything else, a lot of people have speculated that that's why they're not named in the book of Revelation. When you read the 144,000 and Dan's left out to make room for the two sons of Joseph. And so they've speculated that that's the reason why, but the truth is we're not told why. We're just told the names, and as far as I'm concerned, that's what God said, that's what God's going to do. Right. And the tribe of Joseph is the tribe of Ephraim. He received the birthright. Yes, Ephraim received the birthright. Yep. Anything else? We're good? That's, oddly enough, the book of Amos and the Old Testament leads us to that's the gospel. That's the good news. All right, there go the internet people. Bye. <laughs> oh, okay, do you want to say goodbye? Say goodbye to the internet people. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.